0: Hello, hey up, ducky. How are you doing? Hi, Esther. <laughs> Actually, Jane isn't really here. We recorded a wonderful podcast yesterday with Jane and the wonderful Liz Knight, who's written a great book about foraging called Forage but we had a disaster, a real disaster, that at the end of the record, the computer crashed and we lost all the audio from me and Jane. And the only audio we had left was from Liz Knight, which happens to be brilliant. So we've saved it. <laughs> and then I'm going to sort of narrate the episode to you. Jane sends all her love to you all and she'll be back next week. But for now, she's gone back down the bed and having a nap while I introduce you to Liz. And hello, welcome, Liz. That's a pleasure. Liz isn't really here with me, I'm on my own. <laughs> Long hot days in the shade of some big old tree Making daisy chains and watching all the honey bee I started by saying to Liz how much we loved her wonderful book. Oh,
1: thank you for saying those nice things about it, though. That's very kind of you. (laughs) I hope you carry it around with you everywhere that you go. And I asked Liz, how
0: did she get into foraging?
1: I don't remember not being out picking stuff. I mean, I grew up in a town. I grew up in a town that was not far from London. But it was, you know, I was was born in the mid-70s. So we were still in that era of being allowed to just go off and spend your time outside I was bored. I think maybe that was a thing that kids were bored then. So we had to find things to do, but I just always remember I was always like chewing a blade of grass or doing something and picking stuff and trying to make potions and make things. So I think, I think that was when I got into foraging really. And it never left me as something I loved doing, but I didn't know what it was at that time. And then after I was in my twenties, when I was discovering that I was sticking all these things in my handbag and things which were kind of rotting before I was going to meetings. I was made redundant. I was really, really lucky. And my husband had trained as a teacher. We moved just outside a town called Monmouth, just on the Welsh borders. And we had this little flat and I didn't drive and I I lost my job. The corporate sector had a big crash after the year 2000. And so he was on his teacher's training salary and we didn't have any money, but I wanted to be able to eat nice food still. And I had this little scrappy garden that was full of things like Japanese knotweed and just weeds. And, And I spent a year kind of growing it and weeding it out and wishing i could eat these different things and discovering i could and i just really discovered that it wasn't just that i liked the flavor but i just liked just the whole notion of being outside and also i'd worked in the corporate sector for like seven years and i felt my heart rate go down and i can remember just thinking oh my goodness i am so rich because i've got all of this stuff around me and that's when i started foraging really and it just became part of what I did um of my life and I've got to say that actually at the moment lots of people over the last year have discovered nature which is fantastic it's you know as a byproduct of what's gone on this year it's amazing but one of the things people have done is they've discovered foraging and I've been conscious there's been these two things happening. People have said our lives were too busy, we were doing too much and so we've learned to stop. But also I've discovered foraging and I need to go out and pick loads of stuff and I need to do all of this and I don't want to miss anything. And actually That's, I think, that the best way to forage is not to necessarily go out with an expectation you're going to go and pick loads of things, not with a plan. I think that just being out in nature is good enough. And if you happen to pick a handful of herbs or a handful of berries that will make one meal taste lovely and it's done in a way that's relaxing and calming and it gets you to feel more in sync with your environment, that's a more valid forage than going out and filling basket after basket and coming back with a huge amount of stuff to then spend hours doing because all you're doing then is replacing your busy life <laughs> doing one activity with another busy life <laughs> unfortunately it should be feeding our souls as well as our tummies and it should be doing all of this stuff I would say just if people wanted to get into it just do it slowly just look at the weed think about ask questions as to whether the weeds in your garden that you're digging up Whether they're useless or whether they can serve a purpose for us or for something else, or whether basically there is no plant that hasn't got a value and a use, and we could speak for hours about every plant. But if you look at every plant in a way of, of asking that question rather than assuming it's pointless and you want to get rid of it, find out what its use is first, and you'll be amazed. And the world will suddenly become so
0: beautiful and magic. It really is magic. Oh my goodness, it's wonderful. And I asked Liz how she came to write the book.
1: I started writing the book kind of in very random bits on bits of paper as I was trying to put my kids to sleep over years and kept trying to do something and never really had the confidence to because I'm like you, I'm not really good with books. I felt like I had no right to, read, to write a book because I don't read many books. I love information books and dipping in and getting facts. I think I was writing it for people like us. Because I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic, which makes it even weirder that I got to write a it But I, I think that, you know, I was kind of writing it in that way of, I forget what I've written quite, what I've not written, what I've read quite quickly if I'm reading a novel. But, I, but I, if I look at a picture, for example, I can permanently keep seeing new bits in. And I love illustrative books and paintings that do that. And I wanted the book to be written in a way that you could... Read it on the toy. Oh, my phone's going. So
0: Liz has got her own technical difficulties too. Oh no,
1: it stopped.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know what a fab idea it is using all the weeds in your garden, not seeing them as a nuisance, and and just being able to eat them is wonderful. Anyway, I'm interrupting because here's more from Liz about how she came to be writing the book.
1: Yeah, I kind of over years wrote scripts and wrote you know or little kind of notes, and I want that I kind of wanted other people to know about. And I've been teaching foraging courses for. 10 11 years, it all goes into a bit of a blur. And all of that time, people have been asking, saying, is there a book that you could recommend that was really easy, that's got recipes in, that that I can take this information away? And there wasn't really one in my mind that was really easy to identify, that had all the kind of interesting history about plants, but also had recipes that you could go away and use really easily in your kitchen that made food taste like magic. Because that's what, for me, wild food adds this layer of flavor to to what you already cook to you know it's not about necessarily going and transforming your life emitting your own wellies you know and and it would be great if we all our own wellies and all that but you know with the reality is we lead the lives we do it worked but maybe not for the wellie industry but for me I like, kind of really wanted people to be able to know that if their garden was weedy or if they were failing at growing their veg but they had loads of weeds in their garden they could go out and they could gather them and they could add them to their food that they've got already now and for it to become just like a normal thing to use because I'm far better at growing weeds than I am vegetables and then I didn't write it and I, and I kind of decided I was never going to do it because I didn't read books myself so I would never get to do it. And then one day, I had an email a couple of years ago, well, maybe three years ago now, that just was titled "A Book," and it was claimed to be from this publisher, from Lawrence King, saying we're thinking about doing this book about fifty plants, but it'd have to be able to be sold all around the world. Does that actually do plants grow all around the world? Can that be done? And I showed my husband, and I was like, "Look at this! I've had an approach from a publisher." And he said to me, he said don't, just delete it. It's spam. It's probably got a virus on it or something. <laughs> Unfortunately, I ignored him, <laughs> as good wives do, and replied. And it turned out yeah, that it was this This um, Lawrence King was thinking about having this book written, but they kind of really weren't sure whether plants lived in more than one country. And of course, they do. The whole thing about wild plants and all plants is that they pretty much grow all around different temperate regions of the world because... We've taken them there and other animals have taken them there and they, and they create this amazing map of our history of how people have moved and societies have evolved. And, and and for me, that's what makes wild food even more amazing is that it's got this sort of you know history in and time
0: and, and you can kind of connect it in a way to things that are a bit bigger than the plate of food you've got in front of you. So our next question to Liz was about some of the favourite bits in the book. And one of mine was the chapter about pineapple weed, which I've got growing all over the plot.
1: Pineapple weed. It looks like a chamomile that hasn't quite kind of grown properly. So it's got this dome like... Flower head, and you'll find it's in peak season right now, and it's got these sort of um, ferny-style leaves, um, and so it looks a bit like you'd think it's like a big daisy, chamomile, that looks like it's not grown very well, and it, it grows in compact, compacted areas. So, in even like towns, in cities, and driveways, you'll often find it in people's driveways between like the gravel. And if you rub it, it smells like pineapple. So that's why it's got its name, pineapple weed. But And you can use it for exactly, you know, like if you'd have chamomile tea for calming your nerves and stuff. It, you do, you use it for exactly the same thing if you're using it medicinally. But just flavour-wise, it's got this lovely flavour. that And you can dry it out and use it later on in the year. And it becomes like a hay kind of flavour. But it's, you yeah, know, it's a really beautiful
0: plant. Next up, we talked about the mallow plant, which has lovely pink flowers and a wide variety of uses, not just as the ingredients in marshmallows, but also for its medicinal uses. So mallow is, um, it's
1: got like a these leaves which... obviously it's edible it's in the book and and the mallow mallow kind of quite a lot of different species so there's marshmallow which is what marshmallow sweets were made from originally that you can grow so that's a really beautiful plant for the garden actually it's stunning it's got these lovely grey almost like lamb's ears kind of style um furry um, leaves but it's really good for your chest um it's, it's originally it was have you had halva before that was originally made by the ancient egyptians for like a food for the gods but it was also a medicine so it was for when people had chest infections and coughs and they used to pound sesame with honey and with mallow with mallow roots and it made this thing called halva and it was like a sacrificial offering (laughs) probably better than giving a young child or something wasn't it but (laughs) and so that was like the forerunner of of what halva then became which then kind of got changed a little bit into mallow sweets and eventually they became like a medicine because the roots of of all that and, and the upper parts of the mallow family, they've all really rich in mucilage. So they're really, really soothing and healing and they're really good for your skin, but also internally they work on your, like your gut, but also on your lungs. So if you have like damage from stuff like COVID, like glass lung, there's a lot of plants which help to heal and to sort of soothe and stretch tissues um, so that they're a lot more pla- you know kind of just a lot softer and gentler way to heal stuff and also there's a mallow called musk mallow I've got so I've got musk mallow in my garden which is a white plant. it's got more of a, like feathered leaves but and the pollen is this really really pale blue and all the bees were on it yesterday there were loads of honeybees on it yesterday and they were like, like a mauvey blue and they are so covered that you can't see the colour of the bee underneath
0: And then Liz brought up plantain, which is not one of the big green banana things that you find in the shops, but actually a herb with the very same name. One of the
1: plants that lots of herbalists were using a lot last year for people who had glass lung was a plant that you'd use together with mallow, which is plantain. You know, the big ribwort plantains and the one that sort of flick at each other when you were at school. Did you do that?
0: Yeah, I was one of those kids. I was flicking that ribwort as well.
1: Some people did it who, were, who weren't good. And went down bad career path choices and other people didn't do it. <laughs> I clearly went to the wrong kind of school because I did that for a lot of the time that I should have been probably learning to read books. <laughs> There's, there's quite a few versions of plantain and then there's another one which is really similar, which grows by pineapple weed and it's called broadleaf plantain or plantago major and it's got like a shield-shaped leaf and it's got these seeds which come later on. They'll start growing now and then they get really tall. They're called rat's tails. They look a lot like a rat's tail sticking out the ground, particularly attractive. But they're, for, they're really good and both of those plants and all of the, the plantain plants, they taste of mushrooms Like amazingly of mushrooms. And I only discovered recently that the reason why they taste of mushrooms is because there are some fungi, which obviously most fungi grow next to things, you know, on the roots and kind of a parasitic in that way. But some mushrooms, fungi inhabit their host and they go into the cells of the plant and the plantain family, not the root fruit food, but the plantain herbs. They are one of the plants that actually this mushrooms grow inside the cells of. Isn't that amazing? Oh, God. And they
0: literally taste of mushrooms. Well, if it tastes like mushroom, I am going to love it because I'm mad about mushrooms. As you know, I love mushroom foraging. If you
1: like mushroom foraging, there's a really amazing forager called Mark Williams, who's based up in Scotland and he's been teaching. How do you know him? I've come across him on social media. He's
0: brilliant.
1: Yes. He's also a really good person to go out with. He's really cautious. And I learn stuff every day. So, literally, I learn that. But he only learned that recently. So, I learned... He did a post about plantain and why they taste like this. But we've both been eating plantain for years and both been going, isn't it weird? They taste like mushrooms. And yet, you know, that's there's so much to learn that I think if you ever go out with someone who says, oh, I'm an expert, I know everything, just just run fast because it's impossible to know everything. And he's been teaching mushroom foraging for years, and we ran a course together. And he had this little guidebook with him, and he said every time wherever heavy goes goes to a new spot, the first mushroom you find
0: you won't see. Before. So at this point Jane asked the question Saul so Liz, is this the grass <laughs> trying to do her voice? I can't do it, Hold on. So Liz, is this the giant green banana that you sometimes see in the shop? And Liz clarified. No, just the same name. No,
1: no. A lot of plants have got the same cross-offin. Yeah, it's just a common name. But no, but they're both equally really, really amazing for healing and for um, if you have things like IBS or colitis. Or, it's colitis, isn't it? Um, all of those kind of internal inflammatory things, but also lung-based issues plantain's a really really fantastic herb to get in. and if you get sunburnt it does the same thing on your skin if you get stung by nettles or gets insect bites or you get or anything like that any irritant you just would use plantain on your skin and I infuse when I run courses we always make a little plantain oil for people to take away when you literally just gather a whole rather than ripping your plantain leaves up and throwing them away put them into like a bowl with some kind of warm oil it can just be sunflower oil it can be really basic oil and you just infuse them over like a bain marie for a couple of hours and then that oil takes all of the kind of goodness out the plantain and you can use it as like an after sun or to sort of stop itching and scratching and stuff it's very handy but internally you can take it as well for stuff you know to soothe those kind of things
0: inside Honing my interview skills at this point, I decided to remind Liz and tell Jane that Liz, prior to being the Queen of Forage, had been a DJ and so had begun by collecting not herbs, but vinyl records. And I asked her, did she have a load of records now? Oh, crikey. Not
1: as many as we used to have. I met my, so my husband used to as well. So we met, we had like a bit of a joint collection. Turned out we had like the same music. I don't know. They're all kind of in our living room. Oh. More than we should. I spent all my student grant basically down Notting Hill Road and like in, in in all the different record shops in London, spending all my grant up in days. And I'd be like, oh, I've got nothing to live on for the next few months. But I got loads of records. <laughs> and I used to play at some very, very, very dodgy nightclubs and rather than going to lectures. Yes, I wonder why I can't read books very well. <laughs> but I think whilst I was collecting records, I probably, to be honest, was... Pretty happy just mooching around record shops for it. I don't think it's that different, though, is it? I think it's someone who likes. It's a certain mindset. I think I went to charity shops. Very. I think I, you know, I was a forerunner of charity shops and spent all of my teenage years mooching around charity shops and then going into record shops. And it's all the same thing, I think. Just what you're going to find.
0: Now, if you've seen Liz's book on Instagram or in the bookshop, you'll know that it contains these most amazing illustrations that are just so easy to take in. And I could just really hold them in my mind. And when I went to the park, I could remember all the herbs in the book. And so I asked Liz who had done them for her. She's
1: amazing. Um, An amazing illustrator called Rachel Pedersmith, who does, um, she's a botanical illustrator based over in Suffolk. And we haven't met yet because we started writing, sort of, it was finished, it was edited during COVID, when COVID first started, so we never got a chance to meet. But she is so talented. And she. I used to have to pick things for her and send them to her in the post and hope that they'd get there to her in, you know, in good enough state. So the illustrations, the proof that the Royal Mail works, but she is so talented. I like the fact that it's not... Um, even it's all watercolour, but it's not kind of like whimsical. It's really real and easy to identify. And, you know,
0: yeah, she's really talented. So next on the list, we talked about one of the bees' favourite foraging plants at this time of year, which is the lime tree. I love the lime tree. There's not huge amounts around it because I suppose it's lots of it. It's, It's
1: in town, so there's a couple of places where I followed, in, one's down like on a, on a driveway in an old estate, and it's got lots of different types of lime, there's loads of different types of lime tree, like small leaf lime and large leaf lime, and they often grow together, and they'll come out at different times, but um, I just love the flat I mean, and then there's an old tree, that in a couple of fields away from my life. So I live, I live in the beginning of the Brecon Beacons. A lot of it was wooded, obviously. A lot of the country was wooded. And there's a tree in the middle of a field that it must be a thousand years old. And it just takes your breath away every time you see it. And I went to gather lime flowers from it last night with my kids, but actually their buds weren't open yet. But it was just so magical to be there with it because it is so thick. It's like, you know, it's been coppiced over the, you know, hundreds of years. So it's got all of these different, branches and trunks coming from within it so i make tea with the flowers and the bracts and that's a really calming tea so it's nice to be feeling a little bit kind of jade you know a bit on edge and a bit kind of like um you've got too many things going on a bit anxious but it but i also make it into um Things like dressings, it's just a really beautiful... It's going to get hot this week, isn't it, eventually? Hurrah. It makes the most beautiful, beautiful flavouring to go with like a melon and a cucumber sandwich because it's got these melon-cucumber flavours in it. So if you blitz up a cucumber with a slice of melon and you put a little bit of oil in if you wanted to make a dressing and a whole load of lime flowers, and it makes the most beautiful dressing. And you just drizzle that over um, slices of cucumber and melon. And if you, if you eat meat parma ham or like Lakota, and it's like the ultimate ultimate cooling delicious um salad it's really really lovely um but you can but you can dry them and use them through the year you can infuse them into so many you know if you've got honey and you want to kind of add a floral flavor you can infuse the lime flowers into honey but lime trees were planted in lots of hospitals and old driveways have got them because partly it was planted as a sort of pharmaceutical herb and it was used a lot after the first world war when soldiers had shell shock and that's one of the plants that they were given as a tea they were given lime flower tea when they were in convalescence and it really works It works for that whole it's a real kind of gentle like nerve iron spot so it works physically on this, on an emotional stuff as well but it's beautiful lime trees grow like these rosettes of um, young suckers and so you'll often find they've got like a ruff of new growth around the base. And those leaves are full they're actually lime is part of the mulva family which is mallows in so it's the same family of plants even though it's a completely different plant it's got lots of mucilage in as well so it's really good for lungs so if you wanted to use it as long as you get those leaves above dog height on those ruffs those which will be kind of growing around the base of it, you can put those leaves into tea or grind them up. But they'll, they're really slippery. You know, when you glue them, they'll do that same thing of being really healing. Or you can grind them up and make them into a flower that you add to stuff. Or, um, But they're really lovely. Those young shoots, when they come out in the spring, they taste like you can actually eat the inner pith and they taste like cucumber. And they've got that lovely kind of slippery, soothing thing to them.
0: After talking to Liz yesterday, I did actually go and pick some lime flowers and I'm going to dry them myself to make some tea. They absolutely smelled beautiful. With poor old Jane having COVID last week, we did talk a lot about plants that can help your health and make you feel better. And Liz had some lovely ideas for seasonal remedies, as well as some good old fashioned advice about just taking it slow.
1: One of the things with people with COVID is we all kind of try to get well really quickly, don't we? And try to get back to everything because we're really busy. And there's a it, the, you can't use the flowers of it now, but if you have any hawthorn around where you live which most people have got like if they've got like a hedge in their back garden even in cities the hawthorn plant is used as a plant that helps for gentle recovery so if you're feeling like you're just needing to have that like gentle you're immune to just slowly recover it's a really good plant to use and you can literally make that into tea as well
0: Oh, at this stage, we had another guest join the programme. I'm sorry, I'm really going to
1: apologise for my dog barking. The postman's just turned up. And we don't get many visitors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Liz shared her brilliant way of keeping him in control. Oh, my God, he's he's a bonkers...
1: Bertie, Bertie, no, if I say Hoover, Hoover, Hoover. Listen, he stopped. Bertie, Hoover. (laughs) He hates the Hoover. There he goes. See, look. He's come. He hates the Hoover. He gets really worried we're going to put the Hoover on, which fortunately we don't do very often in our house. <laughs> the Hoover. Uh, when he was a when he was a puppy, if he escaped. Ever. We, had to, we had to be really count. He's not—he's untrainable, and so it's a worse kind of dog to have living when you're living in the middle of a sheep farm because obviously he'll go off. So he, he's never allowed off. And one day he'd get—he'd he'd <laughs> smell a bird and he would like jump. We've got a stable door and he'd jump over the stable door. And there's been quite a few times that people have found me running down the lane with the Hoover attachment, shouting Hoover, Hoover, at this dog.
0: <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't prove Liz should be on our show, I don't know what does. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Back to the foraging, though. Liz then talked about red and white clover and its different uses, as well as how clover had history of enriching our soil and farmland so the white clover tends to be sweeter and
1: is really re- i mean both of them are delicious um but the white clover is one that you would find that it tastes more honeyed and it's used mainly for putting into teas and stuff and it's a delicious flavoring and the red tends to be the one that's used more by herbalists medicinally um but they've both got huge amounts of stuff that there's a lot of research going into the benefits of clover for like really really major conditions and illnesses and stuff so it's kind of a plant that been used for so long and it was originally introduced we have it both clovers or within kind of our farmland so much and in gardens because it's a wild plant but it's been used as a fertilizer basically to enrich the ground for Hundreds of years, and originally it was discovered in Andalusia a thousand years ago. That it was a really good nitrogen fixer. So for hundreds of years, it's been used. Even back then, when we had these communities which were growing of people, we had cities. You know, we had these. If you think about, we had these big cities, and we were farming and and growing crops in quite small areas as soon as we started farming as people we've always been doing the same thing where we farm the land to the point that there is no nutrient in it anymore and then you move on and that's part of the reason why we spread as a race you know we kind of know as nomadics once we're farming you have to find a new patch of land to farm on and you wear it out and you move on and so what's happening now with the fear of our soil health is not new you know which actually i think is really encouraging signs that actually it's it's been healed before but so when there was a discovery about clover being such a good kind of nitrogen fixer and increasing the fertility of the soil actually what had been happening was that the soil nutrition had been depleting and there was a need to find something that made it better and it, that practice spread over hundreds of years but by the time the Black Death had happened in across Northern Europe, people think that it was so virulent and so deadly, but partly obviously because it was a deadly disease, but also that we had been eating from crops that had been grown in soil that was really nutritionally in deficit, um, so people were malnourished. And when clover then was introduced, suddenly just we were able to grow crops that like we couldn't grow potatoes when they were first introduced because the soil wasn't nitrogen rich enough and suddenly you could grow this new staple and all of these different things and obviously the bees thrived on it and cows if you ever have had milk from cows which were on clover field it's so fatty and rich and so much more good for you and so it transformed how We farm, but also the goodness of the food that you've got in it. And so hundreds of years, we carried on doing that and carried on eating in that way. And then after the Second World War, when there was all this nitrate left to be used, that's when nitrogen was started being applied as an artificial fertilizer to the ground. Imagine how incredible that would have been as a kind of boost to the soil. You'd have seen there's a reason why farmers put artificial fertilizers on the soil, because you get this massive growth really, really quickly. But then, of course... You've then got a ploughed field and you have to get more in and then it gets run off the next winter. So then you have to put more in. So you suddenly really, really quickly become dependent on keeping, applying the stuff to keep the, the nutrient levels. Because once you've ploughed your land in that way and you're getting into, you're, you're then losing all the other nutrients which were being kept in fields by plants like clover. So when you see these meadows and fallow fields, they're building up their nitrogen levels again when they've got clover in them. And I live on the border of that kind of farm, of, of small meadow farms, which are predominantly, funnily enough, livestock grazed. And they have got the biggest diversity of species often in them because they're moved from fields. Fields are left to go. You know, the meadow in front of my house is full of things like self-heal and yellow rattle and just loads and loads of beautiful plants that wouldn't be allowed to be in a conventional field that had like rye grass in it or whatever, because it would be seen as destructive to the crop, but actually what the farmer that he, he makes the most sweet, sweet hay from that field. And it's just you know, so it's about us really returning back to the practice that we've had for hundreds of years. And lots of farmers are doing it. There's a big movement in regenerative farming, which I think foraging really kind of fits into in that whole notion that actually when the more you eat of wild food, like the more that you eat your docks or the thistles or your nettles, you're not having to uproot the soil to plough, to put stuff in, to put bigger input, but also you're you're just gathering stuff from the top. And all of those things, I know that people probably listening are like, oh my God, docks are just horrific in your garden. And I take docks out of my, where I'm growing vegetables because they crowd stuff the out. But actually, the roots of dock pull huge amounts of nutrients from the subsoil and refertilize the top of the of the ground. So they're all there for a reason. They're all doing a really important job. Like dandelions, they're all doing that same thing. And yet we kind of see them in a different way. Whereas as soon as you return to actually allowing fields to go to meadow for a long time, or what you think is fallow, it's not fallow, it's actually rebuilding the structure. And it's capturing all the carbon that we worry about being released and Good grassland is as important as of woodland, you know, as as important as the rainforest. It's all of as important. So I wrote the book from a point of view, I started foraging from the point of view that I wanted to be able to feed people nice food and have mates around, you know, it was all celebrated. But actually, it's really, really important that the more that people do a little bit of gleaning, like if you start using your plantain as a food, that's one item of food that you don't have to buy that's been grown conventionally. And if we all do, I'm actually saying if we all do that, the majority of the world does it still. The majority of the world still eats wild foods, predominant part of their diet. It's the westernized diet. And it's those of us who are the biggest contributors, the biggest consumers and the biggest contributors to climate change. We're the ones who have the least amount of wild food in our diet. Whereas you go to places like across India and China, across the Mediterranean regions. And you'll find in South America, loads of people are eating wild food as a really
0: significant part of their diet. And it's delicious. Oh, yes, it really is. And then we talked about how fascinating I found the section of the book about honeysuckle.
1: Honeysuckle's amazing. My kids had their weak spot. Like I had, ton- I had my tonsils taken out when I was a child and they all inherited that from me. And so when they were very little, they would tend to the doctors a lot you know in case it was kind of becoming infected their tonsils because they'd get sore tonsils really quickly and actually I used to have a bottle of honeysuckle syrup and I'd get their antibiotic prescription you know and I'm not an anti-medicine person to think that the two go together you know and we've got a sort of science and natural stuff works really you know In has, sometimes you need that other intervention so I'd have their prescription in case I needed to, to cash it in but I'd also start giving them honeysuckle syrup and I you, once I started making honeysuckle syrup and giving my kids honeysuckle syrup for their sore throat, they never had antibiotics for their tonsillitis again. And it's used hugely you know, all over the world for using for, for tonsils, for throat. It works on strep, but also for lung conditions. And it's delicious. I haven't made any yet this year, but I've picked it and I distill it. I've got a little still that I make this honeysuckle water with that I turn into a syrup. So it's a bit of a ridiculous process. I probably make everything a bit too overly complicated. But you can buy dried honeysuckle flowers from Chinese herbalists. Um, So you can buy it online. It literally is kind of like, you know, normal stuff. But I'd be surprised if you didn't find honeysuckle somewhere kind of nearby. But all the petals you can eat and the petals taste like... The flower, the, the nectar, and it tastes like the smell, that scent is absolutely in the flower. But the nectar is something special, though, isn't it? It's like fairy food. Makes you feel all of like <laughs> It's really worth, as well, just being aware that because honeysuckle like lots of different plants have been cultivated over the years so there's you know like lots of wild plants have been then taken into gardens um, and made grown for their scent or for their flower shape that some of those species of honeysuckle actually aren't edible so the two main ones that you'll be able to find that you know 100% will be are the common honeysuckle which is the one that's featured in my book it's the lonisera and also the japanese honeysuckle which is a really common garden plant it's actually um picking anything that looks in incredibly showy as a honeysuckle plant there are places online that you can find out about edibility of different plants but to play it safe stick with the common honeysuckle that you find through hedgerows the wild um,
0: native honeysuckle and with japanese honeysuckle finally liz talks about the necessity for the bees to have a varied diet just like us to ensure good health throughout the year
1: a lot of bees are obviously commercially if they're all put on to kind of one type or they're, you know, encouraged in that kind of big, I don't know, all seed rape crops or whatever. And they go it's such a mon it's like our life, isn't it, that we're all eating the same food. Whereas actually when you've got a bee in an environment where like the lime flower will only be around for a couple of weeks, won't it? And then they'll move on to something else and something else. And it's giving them that really selective broad diet as well, I suppose, isn't it, of all of these different things that they need. And when all these plants come out, they're all at different times. So like elderflower has a chemical in it which helps to cool. Now, you know, whether bees need that in the same way as we do, I don't know. But, but you know, all of these different plants that come at different times of the year come as we, as people need them. And I'm sure as other animals do as well. You know, like, you know, saying about cleavers, saying, oh, I can't really imagine. If you, cleavers actually start growing, At the beginning of winter, and they're at their most tender and delicious all the way through winter when everything else seems to die back. And they're really, and and they become stringy and a bit too tough to look delicious really by spring when you can infuse them into teas at that point. But through the winter, the medicinal action that cleaver does is that they are really amazing at supporting your lymphatic system because they tighten the capillaries in your blood and your lymphatic system, and they push out toxins from your lymph glands, which obviously pushes your immune around your body. So whilst tradition, and we still do, you know, we go into like a semi-hibernation, don't we, in the winter, days are colder, you don't move so much. And so our lymph system doesn't work so well. So our immune doesn't work so well because we're not moving so much. And just as we need it, that plant comes up and kind of supports us through that period where we're not moving so much, where we need our immune to be boosted. Now, I'd never thought about it in relation to bees and to the fact that the health of bees being so important on, on that changing diet according to what they need at different times of year and they coming out of that hibernation. The, the little, the first flower that opens in the spring, do you ever find it um, is um, a red dead nettle which helps to alleviate chills and it actually helps with circulation and it warms you up. And I just think that's amazing that when bees come out, it's a bit too cold, they shouldn't be coming out, maybe on a warm day when actually it's, they should be still tucked up. That plant is giving them not just nectar, but it's also giving them a chemical that warms them. Isn't that magic?
0: We finished our chat with finding out what's best to pick now, not only to use now, but also to set some stores for colder months.
1: Yeah, right I mean, right now, the perfect plants i'd say that around at the moment are lime flowers without a doubt that we were talking about before the linden they're they're beautiful and and meadows those two together lime and meadowsweet that you can gather and use now but they're also plants to gather now and to dry out and to have later on in the year because when we're in the depths of winter it's not long till things start warming up again and it's really hard to remember that you know sad kicks in doesn't it kind of like and after Christmas, anyway, and, and as soon as if you can then start to use these flavors that you've been eating in their peak in the prime in the summer, and then you still got you can go to your cupboard and get those flavors out and put them into things like infusing lime flowers into, I don't know, a lovely milky drink or, or into a cocktail or something and you get this taste of what you've had. It's just a it's a memory of these lovely times, but also it's a bit of a reminder of the fact that these warm days will come
0: back. So thank you so much, Liz, for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Obviously, she can't hear me because I'm here doing this on my own. But <laughs> so goodbye from me and goodbye from me. And we'll have Jane back next week. <laughs> I just make myself laugh now. And I'll call you up whenever I- Bees is written and created by esther coles and jane horrocks it is produced by claire broughton andy goddard and john wakefield and partly recorded at the hives on my allotment near crouch end in london our title music is sweet nothing by amy may ellis and will cookson don't forget to follow us on instagram at queen bees pod for pictures and videos from the hive queen bees is a hat trick podcast